of God's servants, who you all know well, and he's going to talk to us about about something that uh, follows right in with what the Swift Sermon was about, really. He's going to talk to us about what God wants us to be and do. And the title of his sermon is uh, With One Accord, Mr. Matt Steele. They'll say, follow your heart wherever it leads you. Just let that little voice inside you show the way. I guess the million-dollar question is that your heart on indigestion. Because the heart's been known to lead a fool astray. It ain't hard to get hooked on the book of second opinions. We'd rather live our own truth Don't tell us what to do Just what we want to hear But it's high time we turned our interest To God's word instead of Pinterest And finally close the book of second opinion We'll say everything happens for a reason just to give our foolish ways a clever spin And I've heard it said the Lord won't give you anything you can't handle But the truth is we can't handle anything without Him It ain't hard to get up on the book of second opinions We'd rather live our own truth Don't tell us what to do, just what we want to hear High time we turned our interest to God's word instead of Pinterest And finally closed the book of second opinion You say I don't have to change Cause it's just the way I am I got all the proof I need Right here in my Enneagram I can tell myself it's always been about me So give myself a love and positivity but all the good vibes in the world will never make a dead heart beat. Well, the world might tell you all roads lead to heaven. Well, to that there's just one thing I'd like to say. There's one throne and I'm not on it. A solid rock and I stand upon it. Jesus is the truth, the life, the way. It ain't hard to get hooked on the book of second opinions. We'd rather live our own truth. Don't tell us what to do, just what we want to hear. But it's high time we turned our interest to God's word instead of Pinterest. And finally closed the book of second opinions. It's high time we turned our interest to God's word instead of Pinterest. And finally close the book 
of second opinion. You guys heard that song before? It's kind of cheeky, but it's, it's a little fun. Um, that's uh, Casting Crowns, and uh, actually there's a version of it where the lead singer of Casting Crowns is kind of doing a, a, like a sermon that goes along with it, and uh, it's pretty funny. You should, you should look it up. I wanted to start with that song because there's some lines in, in here that I, I just really thought are powerful, and they're challenging to us. You know, uh, think about the world in which we live. You know, we all have our own truth today. Did you all know that you had your own truth? Right? We all have our own truth out in the world. And there, there isn't a single source of truth. We, we all have our own truth. Does that even make sense? Truth is truth, as we know. And so, you know, that's, that's in one of the lines. Anybody a big fan of Pinterest? Not that you're going to admit now. <laughs> right? Or Facebook or any other social media, right? Turn to God's word instead of Facebook, Twitter. I mean, Twitter's kind of fun right now, watching Elon Musk uh, just kind of mess with uh, the, the, the liberal world. But, you know, outside of that, what value is there in those things? And what truth is there, really, in those things? And then, of course, he's challenging us with other aspects, like when things don't work out well in life, right? Well, that, that's God's will. Are you sure? You're sure it wasn't your decision that you made and that just didn't really have a good outcome? Because we do that too, don't we? And so we'll try and spiritualize outcomes from our own decision-making. Maybe decision-making that wasn't directed or led by God. So that was just a few of the different reasons why I wanted to start with this. And, and hopefully it'll make sense to you as I work through this because there's a I think there's a really important part of scripture for us to focus on today as a church family, as the church in large, right, writ large, a church community. And we need to be reminded of some principles that are not our truth or your truth, but God's truth, and why he brought us together in a church, in these, these groups of churches under his overarching church. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, we're very familiar with this passage. We have this presentation of Pentecost and the day of Pentecost. And, you know, we're a long way away from Pentecost right now. You might be wondering, why are we talking about Pentecost in November? But there's a little passage in here I really want to focus on because it's easily missed or skipped over. It says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit 
gave them utterance. And like I said, you know, we're very familiar with this passage. We call this moment the birth of the church, right? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church gathered in Jerusalem. It was the moment when things radically changed and now the Holy Spirit was no longer just assigned to a select group of people, but it was now open for anyone to accept the Holy Spirit of God being poured out on them. The presence of God was finally being poured out in the lives of all of these people in an intimate, personal way. Most of these individuals had heard Jesus, had heard God talking to them, right? Some of them for three and a half years. But now he got to dwell within them. So this is an amazing passage. But that's not what I really want to focus on today. What I want to focus on is this simple verse that Luke records at the beginning when he says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. One accord. Now, you know, there's a joke that says that, you know, what kind of car did the disciples drive? Well, it was a Honda, because they were all in one accord. But this idea of being in one accord, what does that mean? It's often overlooked, but it is a big challenge. Small verse, big challenge. Maybe you can think why. Especially in our world today, we, you know, we've all grown up with a very individualistic worldview, especially in the United States. We have this can-do attitude, individual freedom, individual accomplishment, we can do anything kind of mindset. And it's a little different way of thinking and being in union, in concert with, in collaboration with, one accord with a group of people. It's even more difficult, right, as the song alludes to. We all have our own truth, and so how together can we be? How much in an accordance with one another can we be in the world's perspective when we all have our own truth? In fact, we actually have the opposite of the this concept. We have the self-righteous attitude of having our own truth. And so it would be short-sighted for us to think that we ourselves will not be affected by what the world says about these things and what the world throws at us. We live in the same toxic soup that the rest of the world does. And while we have the spirit of Christ Jesus in us. It's not automatic, is it? It's not automatic that we will just be in one accord and work together well without any effort, without any conflict, without any issues whatsoever. We have to deliberately, consistently work on being with one accord in the church of God. But in order for us to understand how we are to live together in this church, in the broader church, it's important for us to understand 
what this passage, what this little three words really means. And it's actually pretty interesting. You know, with one accord, three words in the English, in the Greek, it's one word. In the Greek, it's homothudion, or no, homo, homothumadon, if I get that right. It's a combination of two words. Homos, meaning together, or the same, and thumos means with passion, anger, fierceness, wrath, indignation, heat, or glow. So depending on the context and the use, it, it helps us understand the meaning. So which wor- version did Luke expect us to take away from this? When he wrote this account, well, you have to think about what they were doing. Where were they? Well, it says they were all gathered in one place, right? So they were in an agreement about the place to be in. So they were in one accord about the place to be in. And they were there on a specific day, the day of Pentecost, or first fruits. And then, what, what else was specific about that day? It was the day that Jesus told them to be in Jerusalem and meet together on that day. So, which version of accord, one accord, were they? Were they in anger? No, and they weren't in fierceness or wrath or indignation. They were with one passion. They were passionately together observing this festival. Expectation was in the air that something was going to happen because Jesus told them to be together on this day. And then, of course, something did. And it's interesting that we have these tongues of fire that spread out on the disciples, on the, the birth of the church as they're all gathered there. And that actually matches with the use of the word heat or glow. They were all glowing and they had tongues of fire and they had a passion and they were meeting there together. So this one accord word is really pretty interesting. And it's also, as I said before, a challenge. Now, this is not the first time, I mean, the last time that this uh, phrase is used. It's used about 11 different times, some with similar meaning and some not, just in the book of Acts alone. But the next time that we find this phrase used, uh, it's just after Peter has delivered his, these men are not drunk as you suppose sermon, right? His great Pentecost sermon. And in chapter 2 and verse 40, he says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And And then fear came on every soul, And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and they had all things common. 
and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone has need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So again, it's this phrase with one accord, just as before, same, same term, same impulse, same passion. And as Strong's Concordance translates it, it's having the same mind, perceiving things the same way, at least when it came to why they were all there. They have the same view on things. And in fact, we even see that even more in this verse because we're introduced to this other term in verse 44. There were in such one accord and one mind about things that they decided to become communist. I don't know if you noticed that, but they have all things common. They decide, you know what, we're going to make a commune out of this. We're going to sell all of our goods and the things that we don't need to sell that we need to keep and share amongst us. And we're going to do this and as a community. We're going to come together and have all things common. Who's up for that? Lucille and I are, are going to do, do that. That's about it. I mean, it's pretty alien to us now, isn't it? And yet we actually do some similar things. You know, in our church budget, we have a budget for assistance where we have collectively, as part of our tithe, decided we're going to set these things, these monies aside to provide for the needs of the congregation when, when there's a need, when an individual has a need. So we've got some of those concepts going on, but not like what they had. Why don't we continue to do that? Well, one of the reasons is it's not our culture to do things this way. It was very much the Jewish culture to do things this way at that time. There's at least four major sects of the Jews at this time that did exactly this in, in, in a variation of that theme, some a little bit more extreme. So the four... Well, we could start with the zealot sect. You guys heard of zealots? Why are they called zealots? Well, they were just called zealots because that was part of their name, but we now think of them as being, well, they, those guys are a bunch of zealots, right? It now means something to us by their behavior and by how they conducted themselves at the time. They were an extremist group. Um, they had very extreme opinions and views. Uh, and, you know, they've, the, the term zealot has become a byword, right, for extremism. They were extro extreme that a good part of their sect rebelled against the most powerful empire at the time and decided that they were going to kick the Romans out and they all, you know, met their end at Masada, right? 
This was the zealot sect mindset. But then there were other others that we know a little bit more about because they were constantly pestering Jesus as, as he was going around doing his ministry. There was the sect of the Pharisees. Anybody want to be like the Pharisees? Nobody wants to be like the Pharisees. These guys got themselves some bad names. They were close cousins with the zealots. They had extremist views, and <coughs> they were probably more self-righteous than, than all the other sects. And that's something that is synonymous to us, right, about a Pharisee. Being hypercritical of others, hyper-aware or trying to be hyper-aware and hyper-accurate about keeping the law perfectly and that they can do it. Pharisaical in their approach. Then there was the sect at Qumran, and they were considered to be the least extreme of the sects. They were more monk-like, isolationist. In fact, that's why we have Qumran, right? We have that location, that place, because uh, that's where they went to isolate themselves from the world. And they were very much a kind of strange group of people that just said, well, we're going to worship God in the way that we think we should worship him, and everyone else can just go to Hades. And God's going to do whatever he's going to do with them. That was their attitude. So still exclusive, right? Still isolationist and we're better than everybody else. There seems to be a theme through these folks. And then the other, the fourth one that we know of is the Sadducees. And they were, uh, oddly enough, deemed the peacemakers. They were the ones that's like, let's just get along with the Romans. Let's just acquiesce where we can acquiesce. Let's just figure out how to, to just kind of just get along with these folks. Don't ruffle any feathers. God's going to do what God's going to do. Let's just, let's just be peaceful and Maybe they were also kind of the appeasers in, in a certain sense. And it's interesting, I don't know if you've thought about this, but you know, these four sects, and I'm sure there was you know, more deviation between them, but if you think about these four sects of the Jews, they sound awfully similar to personality types. And I'm not too sure that that ha didn't fall out because certain personality types kind of flocked together, right? And, and so you have those that are self-righteous and maybe arrogant and uh, think that they're doing everything just perfectly. And then you have the peacemakers and let's find a way to get along. You have these different personality elements mixed in here with these groups. Are we falling into these camps? Do, do we fall out into these personality traits of these different sects? Do I? Do you? Like I asked before, anybody a zealot? Nobody really wants to claim being a zealot. A Pharisee? A Sadducee? Sadducees sound like the nicest ones, right? They're the peacemakers. 
Do we want to be part of that sect? And then we have these early Christians. And you can see their approach was, well, we're going to be similar to these sects of the, sect of the Jews, and we're going to have all things common. We're going to band together, be in a cluster in one place, go to the temple together. Can't blame them, really, right? There's safety in numbers. Their leader was murdered just 50 days ago. And this idea of sticking together for strength and safety is logical. And it's really no surprise that they would organize themselves around this model. That's what they were familiar with, with these religious orders. And so having these life-changing moments together, it just clearly was binding them together as a group. Jesus was the Messiah. They understood this. All of these other sects did not. They're still missing the goal. They're still missing the Messiah. To them, he hasn't come. But now to this Christian sect, he was here. And he was with them in the spirit. So again, not surprising that they would, at least at the start, try to live in these communities and this sect-like approach. There's something else that's going on here, though. Notice that Luke does not say that any of this is bad. In fact, he, he, he kind of has a positive idea about it, doesn't he? They were all with one accord. He's not saying that what they were doing was bad, maybe just a little different to us, maybe a little strange to us. But there isn't a criticism about what they were trying to do. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31, he records this another passage, another time where this phrase is used. It's right after Peter and, and John had been released, you know, for having the audacity to heal a man in Jesus' name. And, of course, the, the Sanhedrin, the rulers, did not like that. And he says, And being let go, they went to their own companions, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. So in one accord again, this, this phrase, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by your mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together with one accord was shaken 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, I don't know who owned all of these buildings that the disciples met in. But I think I would start putting a disclaimer like, you will not pray in my building. Because they keep having earthquakes every time they gather together. And God's presence just comes with them as they are praying, what? With one accord. With one mind. No division in what their purpose and their goal was. And a complete trust in God. And, you know, they also knew that they were getting threatened by the leaders. And what was their first place to go? To God and to each other. They gathered with one accord and they took their prayer to God. A template that we, we forget about, don't we? We get a challenge in life, we get stressed, we get worried, we get overwhelmed with things, and we reach for something other than God. And sometimes we don't even reach for one another. And yet we have this template here that the early church followed, and it worked for them. And God showed up for them. Can we call one another a little bit more often and say, hey, I'm having this challenge this week. Not wait for the prayer requests on Sabbath, but share and come together in one accord and pray together with one accord. So they were in union. They had the same mind. And they realized they needed to pray to God so that he could help them to speak with boldness. They were asking him to help them do the thing that he had commanded them to do. In face of all these obstacles, they could lose their liberty, they could lose their life. And they knew that. So with one accord, they prayed and broke another building that they were in. But have you noticed a theme here? There's a theme with these scriptures. When the Spirit was moving within the church, when the power of God was working through the church, it was in conjunction with the church being in one accord. There's a strong correlation here. Being together in one mindset about why we are together, and I would say by extension, how we should treat one another. With all the body of believers having that same mindset and that same heart, that same worldview, reminds me of Psalm 133. David says this, it's one of the Psalms of Ascent, and he says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head, running down the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore. David is tying this idea of Brethren dwelling together in this unity, in one accord, as being this beautiful image 
of, of the oil of anointing, the oil of life evermore being poured out. And, you know, it, it's the image of Aaron, obviously, but when I read it in the light of the church and thinking about the church, I don't see Aaron the man, I see our high priest. I see Jesus, our high priest. And in a New Testament perspective, I think that church unity is like this. That coming together of so many different minds and so many different life backgrounds and experiences and points of view and political opinions and all the diverse things that are in our background and our life, and yet we can come together in this unity. And it's, 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 it's described as life evermore. That's powerful. It's like the oil that anoints the head of our high priest. In fact, Paul goes further. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, at verse 12, he describes our high priest and how he's made up, how he functions in the earth, how he operates on the earth today. Because he says, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and, having, having, uh, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Think about the, the imagery that he's giving here. I mean, we've read these passages before. But try and think of them afresh, as though you're hearing this for the first time. Because he's trying to help the church understand how God functions and how he wants us to function as his body. I see this as being very similar to Psalm 133. We perform God's work. We are his hands, his feet, his eyes, his ears. You know, we're told to pray, aren't we, for the things that we see on the earth, to sigh and cry for the things that we see going on around us. And those prayers go up to the throne of God. They go up to that altar, and he gathers them, and he remembers them. It's one of the ways in which we function as the body of his son on the earth. We are his body in this congregation and also collectively in this, the larger church community that God has put us in. But we can't know everybody else in the larger church community, can we? It's too big. We can't know people on the other side of the earth. We can't know all of their struggles, but we can know one another. We can have this union together in this church. Paul gets specific, though. And it's really interesting because he addresses two types of people that are in the church. He addresses the type of people that undervalue who they are and what they bring 
to the Church of God. And he also addresses another group of people <laughs> who overvalue who they are and what they bring to the church. And it's interesting how he does it. He says, if the foot should say, <coughs> excuse me, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? I mean, is that a reality? Now, of course, he's being ridiculous. Feet and eyes and ears and so on don't speak. But he's asking us to consider our role in the church. It's pretty obvious. And do we just say, well, because I'm not of this role or that role or I don't do this or I don't have this experience, then I'm not of the body? He's trying to say it's just as ridiculous you saying that about yourself as it is to say parts of the body speak. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If, a whole, if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. Who sets the members in the body? We have an idea that we come to a church and we find our place in a church and that we did it. Or maybe God just led us there. But we have a decision-making part of this. Sorry to break it to you, but you don't. God has placed us in his body as he pleases. Paul just tells us. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? And I just love the fact that he addresses those that undervalue their part, what they contribute, the role that they can play. He addresses them first. I'm not an eye. I'm not that important. I'm not a brain. No comments from anybody about that. I don't contribute much. I'm not a deacon or a musician, Sabbath school teacher or an AV person. I don't do prayers very well. or I'm not really a greeter or an elder or a pastor or a counselor. If we go down that road, what are we saying to God? What are we saying to him? We're saying we reject placement that you have made by putting us in this body. If he places us where he wants us, and we say, no, no, I don't have any value here. I can't contribute. I can't do that, or I, I can't do this other thing. Then it's kind of idolatry. We're putting ourselves ahead of what God wants for us. That is what Paul is trying to get us to look at in this first, this first pass that he has. When we say things like, well, I don't really fit here, or this isn't really my church home, or I'm not too sure of my place, we're rejecting what God has called us to. And I would say we're missing out, aren't we, on the things that he has called us to.
and how we could grow and develop and mature as members of the body. Having that attitude and that view says nothing about the church that you're in. It has everything to do with who we are and the decisions that we're making. If we are here in this congregation, if we are in the larger body of Christ, then we are here for a reason. I think we can all remember Reg's patchwork quilt. We played that song at his memorial service. And that message, I always remember that message because he pulled in names of individuals, even weird strangers from far off countries, and put us all into this one song, this one patchwork quilt. And that's who we are. Paul continues with the allegory, only now he's addressing the opposite side so we can have people that undervalue how they can contribute and the, the role that they can play. And then we have, unfortunately, maybe, maybe none of us are in this category, we have those that overvalue, right? He says, but now indeed there are many members, yet one, one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow great, greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Regardless of the part of the body that we are, the same care one for another. Paul is saying being of one accord. He's saying recognizing with humility the position or the role, the place that God has put us in the congregation, within his body. There are not parts greater than the other. The toe is not greater than the eye, but neither is it less than the eye. Anybody ever stubbed their toe? What happens to the body, before you even think about it, when you stub your toe? The whole body is focused on the toe. The mouth yells out, right? The ears, well, they're kind of just listening, maybe to the crack of the bone. The eyes are focused. The hands are at work. And everything comes down to focus on that insignificant small part that we didn't even think about until five seconds ago when we kicked that heavy object or door or whatever it was not greater, and it's not less. They are different. And so what happens when you just stub one of these toes? R I mean, like, really clobber it. Anybody ever get dizzy with pain? Some people get dizzy with pain, right? 
So it can affect the whole body. But even if you don't get dizzy with pain, it can affect how you walk. Can't it? You can start to limp. What, what does that do? Well, that could put your back out. And depending on how bad it is, it, it removes all that stability as you're limping along for the nice platform of the eyes to see everything just perfectly. That's just a tiny little thing. But if you lose a toe, you lose your balance. Tiny thing. It's critical to everything else working. And, you know, we don't recognize this about our own f physical body, do we, until something doesn't work right. And then we're amazed that it ever worked right, that all of these pieces were in total harmony. And then now one is out of place. Well, what do we do with our body when one is hurt, when part of our body is hurt and damaged? We tend to it care for it. We bring ointment. We bring treatment. We maybe get a surgery. We, we care for that part of the body. And at the very, very last resort, right, when it cannot be healed and the whole body would be, would fall into death, we might have to remove that, that damaged part. But how often does that happen? Very, very infrequently. Yet, sometimes, as the church body, we reach for the saw quicker than we reach for that medicine, that healing, that restoring approach. If the toe insists that it can see as well as the eye, what will that do? Well, it will leave the body in the wrong direction. Paul tells us we all must do our part, the part that we are currently called to do. I remember being a lot younger, it's been a while ago, and wanting to serve more in church and being frustrated that I couldn't serve more in church. And there's all kinds of reasons why, but I've realized I should not have been frustrated. I was supposed to be where I was. I was supposed to be doing what I was doing at the time and not look to be something else. Maybe you've experienced that too. Maybe you have been in the camp of thinking you're ready for doing something and you're not. We all learn, but we are all part of this body. Nobody is worth more than anyone else. And in fact, nobody is worth being part of this body. None of us are worthy to be the body of Jesus. He made us worthy. <coughs> so in verse 26, Paul says, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. For if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ. And members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. And so he gives us some examples. And I think these are, are literally just, just examples. He's appointed these in the church, first apostles, and second prophets, and third teachers, and after that miracles, and then gifts of healings, helps, 
administrations, variety of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And of course, you know, that's our break in the chapter. But what Paul is about to launch into is the love chapter. You want gifts? You want a role? You want to do more? He says, do this first. And he goes into the chapter on love. Paul makes it clear that we do not pick what role we have in the church. God picks that role. God appoints us to those roles. God has appointed you to your role or your place in the church. Are you stepping into it? There may well be a place out there, an area in which you can serve, that he's calling you to, and you're not stepping into it. You know, we're about to have our board elections. And um, except for a few changes, we have the same folks standing for election. I'm not trying to get rid of you guys. But there's an opportunity there to serve. And you could put your name in to serve. Is there a role and a place that God has called you to? And you have haven't stepped into it. Maybe God has called you to be a healer. I wish we had healers. A lot more healers. Anybody want to be a healer? <laughs> We'd have a lot of work to do. They had healers in the early church. Why do we not have healers in our church today in, in that specific sense? There are times, of course, that God uses any single one of us to heal. This was a very specific, deliberate role that the individual would carry that spiritual gift and be used by God to heal. Do you want to be an administrator? Maybe you're called into administration. Maybe you are the brain or part of the brain in the body. Ask God that question. Ask him how we can serve. Ask him in what way we can serve. Is he calling you to that service? Paul touches on this again in Ephesians chapter 4. And I think it's worth reiterating. He says in verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord and one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, he says, 
When he has ascended on high, he led captivity captive and has given gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does he mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who has descended is also the one who has ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he, and he himself gave some to be, again, examples, apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. Many, there are many different roles in the church, not just the ones that he cites here in, in Ephesians. Just to reiterate again, are we filling our role? Are we doing what God has called us to do in his church? Why would he do that? Why does he do that in the body? Isn't it just enough that we can be this image of of Christ's body, we can be his hands and, and, and perform his work for the world? Why is there a role within the church for the church? Why does God do that? I don't know if you've ever asked that question, but Paul gives us the answer. He says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We cannot perform the work of ministry out there in the world unless we are equipped. And we are equipped by providing and serving and ministering to one another and enabling one another. He says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. You know, we, I don't know, when you read that, does that feel like our church, that we're, that we have a danger here of being driven to and fro by all kinds of strange doctrines, and and that there's craftiness and deceit and, and so on? I think we would be ignorant to just think, well, that was only back then in the early church, because they absolutely had a problem with it. Paul would stand up a church and then along come these guys after him trying to corrupt what he's done, trying to bring them into a Jewish practice and a Jewish faith and taking away Christ out of their faith. That happened over and over again. And it was something that that was very real. Could that happen to us? Well, Yes, we still have the same enemy, don't we? We still have that same enemy that is at large in the world, and he doesn't want us to continue. He doesn't want us to mature and grow to the fullness and the stature of Jesus Christ. And so he gives us roles to fill so that we can be aware of these things, so that we can strengthen the bonds of peace, so that we can 
Look out for the danger for one another and help one another. He says, speaking the truth in love, again, why we do this, why we are in this union together, why we're in one accord together. He says, speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Love that last sentence. Edifying itself in love. This body that we are a part of needs to be edifying itself in love. It needs to be caring for itself in love. When one of us is wounded, we're all wounded and we're all affected and we're all limited. And our church body puts its collective back out, right? Caring for that wounded one. Or if we don't care for that wounded one. Are we edifying the body in love? Are we doing that? We need to follow that more than ever. More than probably top of the list. And that's why Paul goes straight into Corinthians 13. The whole love chapter. Edifying the body in love. There's a lot to think about, isn't there? And it's not easy to just be in this union together, to be of one accord together. Tiny little verse, tiny little phrase, but a big challenge for us. It's not simple. It quickly gets complicated and messy because people are involved and people are complicated and messy. All of us are. Even spirit-filled, Jesus-loving, God-seeking, Bible-believing people are messy. You see that in the early church? You see it in the church today. Because we're still a work in progress. We haven't come to the fullness and the stature of Jesus Christ. The last thing I'd like to mention is for us to remember who's really in charge. Who is really in charge of our church? Because if it's a man, if it's any person, then this isn't the church of Jesus Christ. Christ is the head of our church. We all need to remember that. It reminds me of the verse one of the verses of the song that I played at the beginning. And I really like this. It says, Well, the world might tell you that all roads lead to heaven. Well, to that, there's just one thing I would like to say. There's one throne, and I'm not on it. None of us are on that. There's one throne, and I'm not on it. A solid rock. We all stand upon it. And Jesus is the truth to life.